When we were up north last weekend, Charles did not want to wear his coat and hat. We would cajole and plead. We would remind him how cold it was outside, but he would not wear both of them at the same time. Or he wouldn't wear both of them at the same time until we stepped out the door. When the Arctic blast hit his tender Texas skin, he'd exclaim, too chilly, and immediately submit to wearing more gear. How easily we forget the discomfort that we invite into our own lives when we take just one step forward. It's one thing to read, from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt and then to organize a clothing drive. It's quite another when someone new comes into your life and you graciously offer them a welcome to the neighborhood casserole. And after they accept it, they ask if you'd watch their dog next week when they're out of town and gather their mail and water their plants too. Perhaps even that would not be beyond the pale. But what about somebody taking over a new job at work and their ideas are not at all your ideas and their organizing method is not at all your way and their way of running meetings is not at all the way it's done. We're buffeted by change <clears throat> within and without. We're challenged to shift to let go of our coat, those things that feel comfortable and protect us, to shed even our tunics, leaving us naked and too chilly in front of the demands of others. But verily I say unto you, perhaps these are not the demands of others as much as they are the demands of God. Let's take a step back. Chapter 6 opens with the portrait of two different Sundays in Jesus' life set out. The first one, he and his merry band of followers, they aren't named apostles yet, that comes in verse 12 and following. They're walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and they idly, perhaps even mindlessly, pluck a few grains of wheat and pop them into their mouths. Those who find their warmth in the coat of knowing everything about the past and knowing all the right answers and rules, they raise their pointy fingers and say, ah, 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 no work on the Sabbath. And just as Jesus does in the next picture Luke gives of another good deed done on another Sabbath day, Jesus challenges the conventional wisdom. Not only the wisdom of the church people, but also the non-church people. Jesus, you see, is a master at making people feel uncomfortable. He tells to the sinners, you are forgiven, go, but sin no more. And he tells the knowledgeable and the self-righteous, you do not understand. You are not listening. You have missed the point. After these two portraits of Sunday mornings, <clears throat> the next thing Luke tells us is that Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. 
he sat in prayer all night long, and in the morning, he named the twelve who would journey with him and be his closest companions all the way to Jerusalem, and he hoped all the way to the cross. After these twelve were appointed and called out from among the crowd and many, many disciples who were already following Jesus in the way, Scripture says he came down with them from the mountain that they'd gone up on to pray. He came down and stood in a level place. And this is where he delivers the sermon, a piece of which we hear this morning. In Matthew's gospel, the same sermon is recorded again, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. As we can see from the mountain imagery that Luke has employed with going up to pray, there's great richness in the use of a mount as a place from which to deliver important words. In Matthew, he's a writer concerned with showing Jews how Jesus is the Messiah, fulfills the scripture prophecies of the Son of God. He gives to them the new law, just like Moses received from Mount Sinai. Here in Luke, though, the writer chooses to emphasize something else. Jesus launches into the sermon, which you heard the beginning of last week. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and woe to, woe to, woe to. Clearly, we want to be the ones who are blessed. We want to be the poor ones, the hungry ones, the weeping ones, rather than rich or full or laughing. But more than seeking to be suffering in some kind of cruel country of opposites, Jesus communicates the key in today's passage. Less about your bank account or whether you're popular among your friends, Jesus is revealing the hallmarks of the kingdom of God. He's outlining the boundaries of this glorious country over which he is king, the ultimate authority. It's not just that people are nice to each other here in this utopia of God's kingdom. It's not just that people join meal trains for one another or lend a book or a blender with a reminder to return it when you're finished. As Jesus tells us, even the sinners do the same. As my mother put it, that's just humanity. Returning a kindness given is no impressive thing. It takes no supernatural strength to watch your neighbor's dog when they fed your cat for a few weeks last summer. It demands no true kindness to exchange Christmas gifts. As Jesus says elsewhere, indeed, they have received their reward. Until the gift that we offer starts to hurt us, it isn't anything to do with the gospel. We might give away our coat out of the goodness of our heart, but shedding our shirt, that can only come by the grace and strength of God. We might invite a new couple over for dinner, but showing up to babysit their kids every month so that they can go out to dinner by themselves without spending an arm and a leg, 
That commitment comes by the grace and strength of God. We might gather together from several different churches and change the name to create a new community, but continually opening our hearts and our naked lives to one another and to those who come through the door. That is only by the grace and strength of God. The bad news, my brothers and sisters, is that this doesn't change. Whether you are one of the people who voted on the very name of this community, St. Augustine's, back in the day, or whether you've just shown up for the first time today, the change isn't over in your life, and the change isn't over in this community. Dear Lord, we pray in so many ways that the change isn't over in our current world and its situations are not the status quo in our city. But as much as we might hope for change out there, we're served change in here too, among this living, breathing body of Christ. And perhaps most uncomfortably, each of us is experiencing change within our very selves, even this very day, even if we have turned up the volume inside our heads and our hearts in order not to hear it. Here's the simplest way to look at it. Back in verse 20, right before the section we read this morning, um, which is the piece that y'all read last week, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. None of us, I would bet, is an expert at change. Every single one of us is poor in loving transitions. Though I do believe that Jesus literally meant people who don't have a lot of money are blessed, I believe that Jesus meant, too, that any kind of poverty a person suffers is a place where God can work. And if God is working there, it will probably be uncomfortable, but it will also most definitely be a sign of God's kingdom dwelling there. So all of these blessed R's and woe to's are preconditions. Perhaps whether you are poor or whether you are rich, whether you are full or whether you are hungry, whether you have power or whether you are oppressed, stand with me, Jesus says. Stand with me on this level place and hear the good news that's meant for you. If you are poor or rich, tired or laughing, you are a child of God. And this good news is for you. If you are an enemy or a cursor or an abuser or a coat taker, you are a beloved child of God. 
whatever your sin or your darkness or your poverty, you are a child of God. And each disciple, each follower of Jesus who listened to God's words there on the plain, there where the ground is level, there where everyone is eye to eye and shoulder to shoulder, is called to recognize the child of God. The child of God who stands in front of you in the grocery store line, the child of God who cut you off on the highway on the way to work, the child of God who lied to you and left you, the child of God who carries the burden of raising her children alone or of caring for a terminally ill parent or of a life that's been ripped apart from any recognition. Children need discipline and justice. They need accountability, for sure. But that's the job of a parent, of God. The thing that Jesus calls his disciples to do, us, the thing that's more than just being nice, is the relentless belief that each human being is a child of God and that the truest reality we can live, the realest story we can know in our bones and live in our lives is that Jesus has brought to earth and even to Dallas, my brothers and sisters, the very kingdom of God. Amen.